Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. The last six months have brought unprecedented changes to the way we live and work. Lockdowns and the need for social distancing have forced employers in all industries to move to remote and home working, and they've had to do so at speed. Some security compromises were inevitable, and it was also inevitable that bad actors would try to exploit any weaknesses and exploit our fears of the virus. But the workforce has proved to be adaptable and resilient, and some organisations are even reporting improved productivity and job satisfaction. The challenge now is to make sure that that flexibility is not storing up security problems for the future. Over the next few weeks, Security Insights asks if now is the time to start looking forward and to try to get ahead of threats and risks. Our first guest is cybersecurity strategist Morgan Wright, currently Chief Security Advisor at Sentinel One. We started by asking him what security professionals have learned from the pandemic so far. Here's one quick takeaway. Nobody's business continuity plan survived initial contact with the pandemic. Uh, as the old saying was, you know, your initial your battle plan never survives initial contact with the enemy. We all had business continuity plans. Nobody had a pandemic continuity plan. We thought that we might be out of the office for a couple of weeks. Not that way. To your, to your point, we were talking a little bit earlier about the, the shortage of even things like laptops. I did a webinar with some folks from Lenovo who we partner with. I even said to them, what about you guys? Yeah, absolutely. They were trying to source and get equipment. People wholesale overnight shifted everything. Well, when you do that, you have an impact on security, on processes, on people. People that would normally go into an office and be able to, say, have eight hours away from the family and the pets and the kids, whatever else. Now they're dealing not only with their work, but with everything else. So if you're trying to tell me that I can be as effective at work in terms of identifying threats and responding to those as I as I can at home, I would say you're absolutely wrong because now you have all of these other stimuluses. I mean, there's a thing called cognitive load. You can only take so much in your brain before things start falling through the cracks. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's had a huge impact. I don't think from a behavioral standpoint um, that we really understood what it was going to take. And, and really too, Stephen, the other thing I thought this was, this was uh, a perfect microcosm of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When we start moving away from the office and you have all the people who were normally used to collaborating on teams and being there, and now you don't, now there's anxiety. There's other things that happen as you're trying to figure out, how do I get the work done? What do I do? We had an initial increase in productivity. Then I think it kind of tapered. And then maybe it's going back down now because there's only so much you can take with all of this cognitive load around you. And one of the things that gets impacted is security. So I think in the six months, I think... I. I'd like to say that I'm Nostradamus and I can predict exactly what's going to happen. Stephen, nobody can. Nobody can predict what's going to happen. What I can tell you this, the only thing that's constant is change. And either we need to get better about seeing what's coming next, what's over the horizon and preparing for that, or we're going to be uh, in a world of hurt because we're simply reacting to what's in front of us. And that means our adversaries. That means just it doesn't even have to be threats from an adversarial standpoint. It could be changes in technology and processes. We're always playing catch up. And now we may be putting ourselves farther behind the curve than where we were before the whole pandemic started. That's one of the risks, isn't it, that we've actually stepped backwards. And for good reason, because organizations needed to deploy technology quickly. We've seen 
the use of mobile technology in a non-mobile environment because it's something that you can get there. You mentioned laptops, but a lot of organizations have relied on smartphones and tablet devices as well. They've relied on bring your own device more appropriately, perhaps find the device that you have somewhere in the house and push that into service for the business. Because again, that's that's all there was. Expediency. That's what we've seen. And we've seen people actually react quite well and adapt quite quickly. But the expediency hasn't been a good friend of security. And anytime that happens, the first thing that goes is the old joke used to be you're building a system. You have three things to pick from price, speed and security. Pick two. Security always seemed to be impacted because once you started becoming remote and mobile, then it was the imperative to we've got to stay, we've got to keep up with the market, we've got to find new ways to serve our clients. Anything that created friction that got in the way was going to be moved to the side. You had shadow IT, you had people finding all these new different ways to collaborate using uh, personal versions of software that was never designed to work in an enterprise environment. People working from home and Lord, help me understand why anybody would want to connect their refrigerator to the internet. But now you have at home, you have all of the IoT devices that you normally might not have. You know, do we know what the impact is going to be? No, because now what we've done, Stephen, is taken a way that we had of controlling things. Even when I was, for example, at Cisco, um, it was great. You could open up your laptop, go into any office in the world. It's the same Wi-Fi network, the same, the same badge would work anywhere. But once you start going from home, you have... Uh, how is your home configured? How is the bandwidth? What's the security on your personal router and your personal firewall? What's the quality of service from your provider at home? So, I mean, we have all of these things that create exponential variables and problems. And I think the problem is, is people are trying to do too many things. I think what we've got to do is bring it back down, follow Occam's razor. You know, sometimes the simplest explanation is what works. Keep things simple, manage to that point, and then build from there. I think we tried to do too much too soon. And I think it's created this tsunami of something that's going to happen. We don't see it coming yet because we're not looking far enough ahead. We don't see what's over the horizon, but I think we're about to get hit with something in the next six to 12 months that will be the product of everything we're doing right now. What type of incidents have we seen? And we haven't seen a really large scale cyber incident related to COVID in the way that we, for example, saw WannaCry. So maybe that's we have just been lucky. Maybe that is something that's building up and may happen later. But I would have expected to see more incidents. Clearly, yes, there have been activities, criminal activities targeted primarily against consumers and, and small businesses to an extent. But we haven't seen a large scale disruptive influence on the Internet as yet. Or at least not one that's been publicized. Uh, this is one of the things I don't think you'll see large scale. I think what you saw is an increase in phishing and spear phishing attempts using COVID and all of these variations of COVID because people have anxiety. People need, again, they, they, they want to, how do I deal with this anxiety? You're telling me you have a solution. Great. I'll click on this link because my anxiety level is so high because COVID is in the news. Every single day, I have to figure out a way to deal with that. So I see. I think you've seen an increase on the uh, uh, consumer side, the personal side. I don't think you're going to see huge attacks right now. Why? Because I think the big focus right now is going after where's the money, where's the real target. The target is the vaccine development, the research, things like that. I think that's where it is. Once that starts leveling out, I think you will see the focus of these attacks go back to maybe what it was before. But there's... You know, I don't know if there's a real need to go after a lot of PII, you know, and and uh, credit information and stuff, data breaches right now. Because guess what? The money's in the vaccine. We don't know what the impact yet is because there are so many 
areas that can now are ripe for exploitation because it was rolled out quickly. And now we're going back and trying to say, okay, after the after the house was built, now I want to go back in and dig out the foundation and put something underneath it to support it. Never works that way. And again, it goes back to to go fast, you have to go slow. And the, the people I think that will get this right are the ones who said, look, we can't do everything. We're going to reduce down the things that we can do, do only a few core things, defend our core infrastructure, build from there. Those folks that went out and said, well, we just have to do everything. You know, the, 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 the sky is falling. Uh, they're just throwing up to see what sticks. I think those will be the, the companies and the organizations and the people who will have longer term damage. We don't see it right now because we don't actually quite have enough data and enough time. We don't know exactly how this is going to go. We've never dealt with a pandemic of this magnitude. We've had, you know, H1N1, we've had other pandemics, but this one that has actually shut down travel, shut down commerce. If you wanted to ever see, do you remember in 2000, Stephen, we're worried about Y2K and what's going to be the impact? It's going to hit everything. Biggest non-event of my lifetime, right? But now if you really want to see what's critical, what's in the supply chain, start shutting down just one thing like air travel or start shutting down one thing like restaurants. And you can now see everything that was connected to it, the impact. So I think this impact will be far greater than what we imagined. I don't think that it's not recoverable. I think we can recover from it. But I think the price of recovery and the opportunities for mischief, for criminal activity, for exploitation will will become apparent over time as people try and figure out these systems and now these holes are in there. To your point about credentials, absolutely. What's the chances that people are going to change a lot of their credentials? Probably not passwords. People still have bad passwords. And unless you've really locked down with two-factor authentication, uh, the use of cloud technology with secure connections or VPNs you know, when appropriate, unless you've really got that set up, trying to throw those things over the wall and say, here, catch this, do this at home. You're right. It's going to just increase uh, things like that, just going to increase opportunities for exploitation later down the line. And do you think we'll see problems reemerging as we start to move to a more normalized way of working? We see more mobility. We see more, for example, business travel, more people working out in the field. The one word I just don't want to use again, and hopefully I haven't used it, is this this phrase, new normal. I, I, I have to tell you, I'm just I'm so over the, the the word new normal. There's no, you know what it is. It's it's uh, just accept what your reality is. You know, take the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. This is the way it is. What do I have to do to operate based upon the conditions that are in front of me right now? And I think you're right. I think uh, the use of mobility, the use of tablets, the use of phones. Not only does it change, work is now something you do. It's no longer a place you go. We will never go back to offices that were fully staffed and having that kind of hustle and bustle, you know, in the financial district in London and uh, in Wall Street, you will never see the same kind of activity because once you get it pushed out, it's very hard for everything to come back in. I think we have to rethink about how do we use mobile technology. Um, there are, by the way, Stephen, by 2025, 75% of the workforce will be millennials globally. How do you deal with that? They don't want to lug around a clunky, you know, I remember in the days of having a 17-inch laptop, that thing, you know, you're traveling, you don't wait a lot. If it can't fit on a tablet or a small phone, but that, that means we have to change how we work, how we design applications, the workflow, the things that you do. And you know what, Stephen? Here's the other interesting thing. It may be now that you go to work for a company, spend 10 years there maybe, which now is a relatively long term for most folks, 
and never ever visit an office, never ever see another colleague in person and have to do everything remotely. What kind of impact will that have on your career development, on your skill development? So um, again, it's I, I, there's no magic chessboard out there. There's no magic uh, mirror that says, look into the mirror and tell me what you see. I think we have to get better at, at adapting to what is our current situation and having enough insight and taking the time, taking a breath to step back and say, okay, what's coming next? What's over the horizon? Wayne Gretzky, you know, the, the, the famous uh, uh, Canadian and U.S. hockey player, used to say he didn't skate to where the puck was. He skated to where the puck was going to be. We've got too many people skating to where the puck is or to where the football is, uh, to use an English term, not our football. But, you know, where's the soccer? You know, where's the ball going to be? That's where you want it to go to. You don't kick it to the person. You kick it in front of them so they can meet up with it. I think we've got too many people trying to, you know, skating to where the puck is rather than to skating to where the puck's going to be. We don't know the impact of that, but it's going to change how we work, how we hire, how we design apps, uh, millennials, how they want to work. Uh, and maybe it's that your workforce in the UK, maybe 10% of it is going to be living in uh, Bali somewhere and never, ever see the shores of the UK ever. And that has a long-term impact on the systems of record, the back-end systems in the business. And, and many of those have been opened up now to remote access, which they weren't designed for. So again, are we likely to see that causing problems before where cloud was kind of like do we do it or don't we i think this push to cloud we had no choice we had to have that distributed uh technology capability workforce uh just everything you were mentioning the systems of record things that would normally have been money would have been spent on and budgeted to say now it is time for this upgrade that money went to buying laptops or creating the remote workforce that we have to so once you start taking robbing peter to pay paul so to speak you can what what suffers what does the budget look like where are the decisions made to say look we'd love to issue new laptops but we can't do it this is a system of record this is one of our critical business systems it has to be upgraded the reason i think a lot of people don't do it is because the pain is not immediate they don't see an impact it's like if you walked out one day and your car was on fire that's an immediate impact i've got to replace my car well, in this sense, your car's just got a slow drip of oil. It's just got a slow leak. Uh, I'll just patch it up. I'll just do a little bit of it. And pretty soon what happens is you drive it for so long, just keep trying to add to it and just do simple maintenance. Pretty soon the engine seizes, and now the money you will spend to fix it will be far greater than if you'd solved the problem originally and just dealt with it back then. Well, that's very true. But again, security being a form of insurance for a lot of organizations, it's it's hard to persuade people to spend more on the insurance because to continue with your analogy, the car still runs. You know, it's kind of like I talk about weight loss. Um, if you went out and you ate a donut today and you gained 25 pounds overnight, you'd go, whoa, you know, but it's this incrementalism. It's a, it's an ounce here. It's a little bit there. They don't, the reason they don't see it with security is because unless you're the victim of a data breach, then data breach is more about assigning blame and attribution. Well, who did what? What didn't we do? Um, let's go back and fix that problem. Then it is to say, I'll give you a good example. Um, I'm also a senior fellow at the Center for Digital Government here in the United States. We're kind of a research and advisory group, uh, work with a lot of the states and the CIOs. I was giving the – we were starting off the season of our digital government summits. I was giving the initial keynote in Baltimore the same week that Baltimore got hit with the ransomware attack, not too long after Atlanta excuse me, got hit with the ransomware attack. 
When you go back and you look at the cost of these attacks and recovering, had they spent $2 million to $3 million to upgrade their security to get it to be rock solid as good as they could, they would have saved $16 million. Um, I testified before the U.S. Congress on the safety and security of healthcare.gov. It was our large healthcare system that was launched in October of 2013. There is a phrase that comes out of government, but I think it's it's applicable across many sectors. It says, in government, you never have enough time and money to do it right, but you always seem to find enough time and money to do it over. You've seen that in the UK. We've seen that in the US. Systems that should have been fixed. Now, oh, now, it's a, now we're on fire. Now we want to spend the money it takes to fix it instead of looking at it, as you said, Nobody wants to spend the money now, but if you spend the money now, you will save $15 million or 20 million pounds later. Nobody thinks that way. We think what's in front of us, not what's coming next. And that's understandable when you've got a lot of disruption going on. So again, organizations are not just thinking about budgets here, but it's also about capability. If you only have so many people who can deploy an IT system, they're going to be focused on remote working. They may not be focusing on patching a back-end system that isn't currently seeing a lot of traffic or use. They have to keep the lights on. They've got to keep things running. Uh, and again, we go back into a maintenance mode as opposed to a uh, refresh mode. So now now we're maintaining things as opposed to refreshing the technology. And look, I don't know that we could ever change that. I mean, it'd be great to say we should have the money coming in. We should, we should be budgeting differently. Maybe out of this will be a new way of determining what are actual priorities, not priorities that the, the house is on fire today, but what do I have to do to save 10 houses tomorrow from the fire threat? You know, so uh, you see that a lot in wildfires. If you don't spend the time, especially in the U.S. and California, getting rid of dead wood, getting rid of old stuff around your house. When the fire comes, that becomes fuel and that even creates a bigger problem. So those homeowners who spend the time to clear out the dead brush and the dead wood around that, they tend to survive the fires better. But again, it's that daily, it's that non-sexy, it's that boring routine of we got to do the maintenance, we got to do the basic stuff now so I don't have to be caught with a huge bill for it later. So how do we prioritize or what should we prioritize in terms of reworking what we have, uh, replanning what we have, looking again at the steps that have been taken during COVID? If you're a chief information security officer or indeed if you're the CEO and the CFO, where do you start? Because this could be a very big project. Oh, yeah, no no doubt. And I don't think there's any one right answer. I think it's going to depend upon, look, for example, if you're in the government, if you're in MI6, if you're at the at, you know Legoland there, you cannot take your work home. There's no such thing as remote work when you're in the security services or at our CIA here. But maybe it's a mobile first strategy. Maybe what we start thinking is we're going to design our entire company to be mobile. Now, if you happen to come to an office, that's great. For so long, the paradigm was you come into the office and then we'll figure out a way to get you to work mobile and we'll do all. As opposed to why don't we just make everybody completely mobile? So if you come and that gets into then how we do hoteling and how we do the management of real estate. Uh, we have so many buildings out here in my area that are just now vacant because employees are not coming back. Amazon now is looking at old malls or old business buildings to become, you know, warehouses. So um, I think it's maybe as we, if we start thinking about this, look, why not design it once so that no matter what happens, e either you're working in an office or you're working from home or working from anywhere, it's no longer work from home, but work from anywhere. Why isn't it a mobile first thought to say everything should be about being mobile first, everything, your security, your capabilities, your processes, your applications should all be designed that you're mobile. If you happen to come into an office, you're still mobile. You just happen to be in a structure, right? But but we've designed everything to be in structures with all the, the IT staff is there, the support staff is there. Everybody was designed to be centralized. 
What if we came up with a paradigm that says no, there's no centralization. Everything is decentralized. Everything, it doesn't matter where you are. You need to have an envelope of security capability, this application support, no matter where you are, you carry this bubble, this application bubble around you, and it supports you no matter where you are, whether you're in the office, whether you're on a plane, whether you're working from home, whether you're on the beach, uh, whether you're in Wales or whether you're in Kent or whether you're in um, you know, Scotland, it doesn't matter. Wherever you go, you take everything you need with you. It's no longer dependent upon a physical location, and that gets into the paradigm shift is work is no longer a place you go. It's something you do. Can I? If I can do work from anywhere, it means I can do it from an office as well as I can do it from home, as a car. Maybe I'm on the tube. Maybe I'm on a, a, a subway. Maybe I'm on a bus. Why can't I be as productive no matter where I'm at as opposed to the only place I can truly be productive is where I've spent all my money and that's on a fixed you know, four square walls with brick and mortar? Would that also build resilience? It's not only the resilience of your infrastructure, but the resilience of your people. How do you, how do you bring the resilience together? And it really is. It's like um, bend, don't break. What can we do to be flexible? What can we do to, to absorb? If you look at some of the great ideas, they come out of nature. Some of the ways that we can respond to this come out of nature. You look at the adaptability of whether it's the chameleon being able to change colors. Um, I love it. I've got a lot of right outside my window here, hummingbirds and birds and all of the different beautiful things that are out there. But willow trees, you know, the, the mighty oak, you know, it's an old story. The mighty oak falls in the wind, but the willow, hey, it bends. It goes with the flow. I think we've got to become more adaptable in our thinking. We've got to become less rigid about where we think work needs to be done. Because guess what? That goes back to an old philosophy that when I started copying, you know, being a copper in 1982, it was all about accountability. You know, you had sergeants. We had this hierarchical structure. Even in corporate America, you think of the IBM and the suits. Everybody's in an office, and they had a manager. And then the managers had managers, and then you know everything was structured. Doesn't work that way anymore. So I think we've got to become more flexible in our organizational structure, more resilient in our thinking. But I think the thing we've got to do too, as we bring people on, we've got to teach people how to be resilient in their personal lives. How do you work from home? How do you work when um, you've got children and pets? You know, and maybe you're a caregiver for a parent. There's so much resiliency, not just about the technology, but technology doesn't work unless you have people working the technology. How do we do both? So how then do we move? the understanding and appreciation of security so that they do things in a secure way from the outset. You know, there was a saying when I was a trooper, we used to use this in accidents. We said the person overdrove their headlights. They were going faster than their headlights would allow them to stop within the headlights. They couldn't see the threat. And that goes back to training. My children, when they were growing up, all of my kids are growing up now, but when they got in the car, everybody wore a seatbelt. They were trained from day one. This is the way it is. And I think part of this is a, is a, um, is a generational thing. I think we will have a, a lot of folks that will be transitioning out of the workforce because they're at retirement age, or maybe they took an early retirement. You've got, like I said, the millennials, 75% of the workforce coming in. I think it's got to start from even before they're hired. They've got to start understanding this is our culture. This is the way we do business. You know, uh, there has to be a, not just accountability, but you have to feel you have some equity. You have to feel you have some proprietary interest in what's going on. And I think that goes into the way we motivate people to work, understanding why do I want to come to work at a certain area? Am I trying to change the world because I have these great visions or am I a coder? Here, I'll give you a good example, too. 25, 30 years ago, if you asked somebody what they did, Stephen, they would have said, um, I work for the BBC or I work for IBM or I work for, you know, Cisco or whatever. Now they say, what do you do? They say, I'm a data scientist. I'm a programmer. They identify with their skill, not with their employer. So I think employers and organizations got to get smart to start saying, how do we adapt 
inst- instead of making them adapt to us, how do we adapt to them? How do we reskill our management with better skills, better techniques? How do we reskill our current workforce? Because you cannot hire your way out of these gaps. So what can I do to retrain you? One of the greatest uh, educations I got when I was at Alcatel Lucent Bell Labs is uh, it came time to do layoffs, which is unfortunate in the organization. And I realized in France, if you want to lay somebody off, it's like a two-year process. You have to re-educate them, reskill them, you know, or it was at that time. And at first, I kind of railed against that. I said, well, look, in the United States, you just give notice and then people are gone. And I thought, yeah, but is that the right way? You know, should we, you know, we're missing the point. Can we reskill people into cybersecurity? Can we reskill people into artificial intelligence and machine learning? Can we take, and, but I think it's a change in philosophy of management, a change in philosophy of how we hire, and it's going to be a huge change in culture. So, you know, uh, culture eats strategy, as Peter Drucker said one time, you know, all the time. How, if you get the culture right, Everything else will follow through, but it's those who still stick to the hierarchical top down. I'm the boss. You do it because I said it. I think they will have the biggest challenge. They will be uh, the movies that we make about dinosaurs, you know, 20 years from now. And despite what we've witnessed over the last six months, are you optimistic that actually we might come out of this better in some ways? We may come out of this more secure. We may come out of this more uh, more productive. You know, once you are given a reality, you have no choice but to say, how do we ensure that if this were, if the worst case scenario were to happen again, we're not going to be impacted by it. And I think, yes, I think we'll come out of it because I think, at least I would say in the majority of nations we will because they're free, they're capitalistic in, in terms of some of their uh, motivations. Not from a, you know, I'm not I'm not getting political and saying, uh, but I'm just saying because they they have to succeed because they have to keep people employed because they have to generate a profit. Governments are unique because they don't necessarily have to generate a profit. They they exist to create rules, regulations, policies, laws, provide for the common defense. Um, but corporations, if you ran if you ran corporations like governments, um, their debt would be huge. They'd be out of business. If you ran um, governments like corporations, they would actually be turning a profit. Um, but I think with those two mindsets, I think we will, Stephen. I'm optimistic for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I've seen how we – here's the other thing too. I've seen it in some of the work I've done for the Center for Digital Government. Projects that used to take two years and $10 million are now being done in five days. We've removed red tape. We've removed bureaucracy, especially in the government, to say, why does a tender have to take a year and a half to get out to get done? Because we were addicted to process. We were addicted. Somebody's job was saved because we had this process in place. Well, it's not about – we don't have a duty to one person. We have a duty to an entire community, an entire nation. So how do we change the processes to benefit the actual people as opposed to benefiting the system and the process itself? So uh, that's why I'm optimistic. I have seen so much change happen simply because they had no choice. They had to change. They had to come up with new and creative ways to say, how are we going to get this done? And in Oklahoma, because I remember I I moderated this webinar with the chief digital officer for Oklahoma. He came out of the private sector. He had no illusions uh, that it was tough in government, but he didn't also have the same baggage. He said, no, we're not going to do it that way. I don't need $10 million, 50 consultants to do something that we we got together, drew it out on a whiteboard, and in five days, we actually had our solution, and we built it from there. Save the taxpayers a tremendous amount of money, but more importantly, solve the problem they were trying to solve quicker, faster, more efficiently than spreading this out because that's the way in the United States, it's called the Hatfield and McCoy syndrome. They were at war with each other since the Civil War, you know, because that's the way it's always been done. Well, that no longer works, and I think we have to... Um, 
break these traditional paradigms. We have to be willing to poke holes in conventional wisdom and say, why? Somebody needs to raise their question and say, why are we doing that way? Do you feel that we have taken sufficient measures to safeguard ourselves against the risks caused by the pandemic? And if not, what should we be doing? Uh, the first answer, no, because we, you ne- nobody ever does enough. There's no way to ever do enough. The question is, have we done, have we done just enough, though, to uh, at least keep ourselves on level footing so that we can figure out the solution. Sometimes what we need is something that's good enough. Let's get ourselves back to a level set so that we can have time to take a breath. And I think the biggest uh, victim out of a lot of this, especially in corporations, has been the lack of strategic planning. In other words, they haven't had the time that they might normally to sit back and think strategically where we're going because it's so much about fighting the fire right now. Well, you got to get out of firefighting and get into fire prevention and step back and say, okay, I think we're at a time now, even though things are still happening, Stephen, I think we're at a time now to where people can stop, kind of put, don't put things on pause, but say, look, we're not going to make any changes for a little bit, but we've got to think critically and strategically. Where do we want to go? Are we doing the things that are going to get us there? I think we can maintain where we're at, but maintaining that is not good enough because tomorrow can change everything. But unless unless we do what Albert Einstein said, he goes, the, the problems of today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking at which they were created. We've got to think differently about tomorrow and what that's going to look like because tomorrow will come. There will be – we never anticipated uh, COVID, but guess what? COVID won't be the only thing in our lifetime we have to deal with. Is it a terrorist attack? Is it a major flaw in a technology that opens up security? Is it the advent of quantum computing? Once China gets this figured out, once Russia gets this figured out, now we have nation states with quantum computing that can break AES 256-bit encryption you know, in a couple seconds. What does that do to everybody's security posture? So I don't think we've spent enough time just taking a breath, spending a couple hours and thinking, what's the real problem we have to solve? I think we're missing the time to critically think. Security advisor Morgan Wright on how our experiences during COVID could make us safer in cyberspace and in the physical world. The key, he says, is to be prepared for what might come next. Our next episode in this series will be on Tuesday, September the 22nd, when we will discuss some of the latest research on COVID-related malware with Verizon's Phil Larby. You can subscribe to the series on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and on iTunes and Google Podcasts. I hope you'll join us for the next episode. But meanwhile, thank you for listening.